Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Where do you go when you need to know what's really going on? When I was growing up, you could find out what was really going on at my grandfather's weekly prayer breakfast. I loved going with him when I was visiting with him because I'd get to eat a really tall stack of really good pancakes drowned in syrup with a side of greasy bacon. I love that. I went for the food. Most of the old guys at my grandfather's prayer breakfast, though, came to be together. His prayer breakfast brought together a lot of people from various churches in his city together with city leaders and politicians, the movers and the shakers in town. So I came for the food, but they came to see one another. It was a prayer breakfast, which meant they were going to get to praying. But that prayer breakfast was more 75% prayer requests, which I would say was mostly gossip, followed by 25% praying. And when you left my grandfather's prayer breakfast, you would leave knowing everything that was going on in town and who was to blame. So if you needed to know what was really going on in that town, go to my grandfather's prayer breakfast when I was growing up. Similarly, as we look at the Old Testament, if you want to know what's really going on, Amos was a man, a prophet, who understood deeply what was really going on. Amos was from the village of Tekoa, which was just about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, which was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. But Tekoa was also less than a day's walk from Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Amos was a little bit of a traveler. The beginning of the book of Amos, we read that he was a shepherd, which sounds like a a fairly stable, stay-in-the-one-kind-of-place type of profession. But as we study the book of Amos, we also find out that he's a dresser of sycamore fig trees, which meant that he would take care of the fruit on those trees as it ripened. Consequently, Amos would have followed the sycamore fig harvest from place to place, which likely took him around the kingdom of Judah, almost certainly around the kingdom of Samaria, and very likely even to other nations close by. Amos was a traveler. And as he traveled, he saw his own society from a very common sense perspective. Amos traveled and he met a lot of people. He didn't necessarily mingle with the powerful in his society. He was mingling instead with common people. He didn't hear the perspective from the top. He saw the results from the bottom. He saw what Israelite and and Judah society was like in his day, the practical outworkings of it. And so among the minor prophets, Amos is the one who gives us the clearest picture of what sin really looked like. The Minor Prophets are the 12 books that are the last 12 books in our Old Testament. And these Minor Prophets have critically important messages. They confront sin. Because sin is in the world, they promise that God is going to bring judgment. But knowing who God is on the backside of judgment, they promise 
restoration. Amos, among the minor prophets, is the one who gives us the clearest and most compelling picture of what sin actually looked like in his society in his day. And so we look at the prophet Amos to see what sin looked like, and we ask the question, okay, then, what does Amos have to say to us today? As we examine the prophet Amos, we find, though, that Amos railed against Israel's reliance on riches and rituals. And in Amos chapter 6, verse 1, we begin to locate ourselves in history. Amos chapter 6, verse 1 reads, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Now, as we're locating ourselves in history, we are in the middle of the 8th century B.C., That's when Amos was prophesying. Israel and Judah had been separated into two different kingdoms for nearly 200 years at that point. The nations around Israel in particular had been hitting tough times, including the great empire of the day, the Assyrians. Everyone was struggling at that point except Israel. Israel was on the rise. In fact, under their king, Jeroboam II, Israel grew to be as large as it had ever been since the days of Solomon. And consequently, as the empire of Israel grew, the wealth and the prestige of Israel grew. And so Amos is speaking to this nation that thinks of itself as the best, the first of the nations. And he addresses those in the capital of Samaria who find themselves to be the most influential people in this first of nations, the one to whom everyone else in the country looks for their values and their guidance. Then Amos asks a question, and that question is, are you better then than everyone else around you? He goes on to ask this question in verses 2 and 3 where he says, pass over to Kalna and see... And go from there to Hamath the Great, and go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster, and bring near the seat of violence? So Amos lists three cities that were around the nation of Israel. They came with territory adjacent to them. And he asked the question, Israel, are you better than these other lands? And the implied answer is yes. Because as the nation of Israel, they were supposed to be living according to God's plan, living better than the nations around them. And the answer was yes in the sense that Israel was on the rise and all of these other lands were were struggling at that time. But when you read it, you can tell what Amos' answer is. The people's answer would be, yes, we are better than them. But Amos' answer is, no, 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 you're not better than them. Because the people of Israel 
were behaving like pagans, the same as the people in those pagan lands. And Amos's answer was no, because the judgment of God was coming on those other lands, and the judgment of God was coming on his own people as well. Are you better than them? Yes, the people say. No, no, you're not, says God through the prophet Amos. Which leads us to the question, why? Why is God displeased with his people? And in verses four through six, we realize that it's in part because of their reliance on riches. Amos writes, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And so he says, you have prospered as a result of your conquest and of your commerce, you have prospered. And he confronts them for the level of excessive prosperity that they had gotten to. They, they are using luxurious furniture everywhere. They eat only the finest and richest of foods. They are engaged constantly in leisure. Uh, and they are actually, he says, anointing themselves with expensive perfumes so that the stench of their lifestyle smells just a little bit better. And it's not simply the fact that these people have an excessively high standard of living that Amos is confronting, because as we read the balance of Amos, we find he's confronting them also because their wealth has come from others. They've taken it from others, not only outside of Israel, but they have taken their wealth at the top of the nation from the people of the nation themselves. They have abused the poor in their own land. And the poor in their land have cried out and asked for God's judgment and for justice because of the oppression of these people at the top. And when the ones who are supposed to deliver justice receive the call to give justice, they have denied God's justice. And so God says, you have overly relied on your riches. But elsewhere in the prophet Amos, we read that they have also sinned by overly relying on ritual. Because as we read Amos, we discover that these people in Israel have been worshiping in the temples of foreign gods. They've been worshiping idols. And not only that, we discover that in the sanctuaries they've set up for the worship of the Lord, their God... They have brought idols into those sanctuaries as well. And despite the fact that they have brought idol after idol and false god after false god into their lives, Amos says, you've still continued to worship God. You've gone through the rituals, the motions of worshiping God, looking for his blessing. But it hasn't done anything to change your lives and change your hearts. Your hearts are not open to God. 
And God himself confronts this in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. He says, I hate as a result. I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. God says, I know what's going on. This is a reliance on empty ritual. And so in verse 7, Amos says, as a consequence, you are going to go into exile. Therefore, he writes, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. God is proclaiming judgment on all the nations around them, and he is proclaiming judgment on the nation of Israel. Israel, the first of nations, will be the first to go into exile And the nobles at the top of the society will be the first in the nation to experience God's judgment. So Amos railed against Israel's reliance on rituals and riches. Then God warned that he would visit consequences on Israel. God spoke an absolutely compelling oracle against the people of Israel in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, where we read, This is what he, that is the Lord, showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, this image that God gives of a plumb line is a clear and a chilling image. A plumb line is simply a measuring tool. It usually consists of a string with a weight at the bottom. In this case, in all likelihood, Amos is describing a string with a lead weight at the bottom. The lead weight pulls the string tight, and so one is able to both create a wall that's straight using this tool or measure the straightness or the crookedness of a wall. God says, I'm going to put a plumb line against the wall that represents my people Israel. By that, he means he's going to measure the straightness of Israel. And what he means by that, he's going to measure the degree to which the people of Israel are living their lives based on God's will and the degree to which the people of Israel are organizing their society based on God's will. And he says, I've not done this in the past. In the past, he says, out of my mercy, I have not looked deeply your compliance with my will. Out of my mercy, in a sense, God has said, I have passed over you. I have passed by and looked over your sin. But God is saying, I will not pass by and look over your sin again. I'm coming. I'm going to see it. And I'm going to take a careful look at it. 
And God says, as a result, as I look at your sin, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to destroy your sanctuaries. God knows that they have put idols in his sanctuaries. He knows that they've come and they've performed their rituals really as acts of magic, expecting the blessing of God in in exchange. He knows that their hearts don't belong to him. And so he says, I'm going to destroy your sanctuaries. And then he adds, I'm coming for the house of Jeroboam with a sword, meaning that he holds the king personally responsible for leading the people astray, but not just the king. He holds the entire royal household responsible. Generations have not brought their people to God. But when he talks about the house of Jeroboam, he's talking about the entire nobility of Israel related to the house of the king. They were supposed to restrain the king and help the people follow the Lord their God. He holds them all responsible, and the nation itself is guilty. They have sinned against God, and God says, there is going to be a consequence. And within a few short decades, the Assyrian Empire had risen again and conquered the land and put the people of Israel into exile. And the northern kingdom from that point forward in antiquity never existed in the same form again. God is promising consequences to the people of Israel But Amos' words to Israel raise a question for us, and that is, what does Amos say today about sin? And it's not as obvious of a question as it might seem, because Amos was talking in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. He is confronting the nation of Israel with the ways that they had violated the law of Moses. And we have to ask then, but what does that say to us today? As we look at what Amos said to the people of Israel, though, we recognize that it does have relevance to us today. Because as Israel confronted, as Amos confronted Israel, he doesn't confront them about things that are unique to Israel, about their nationhood and about their ceremonial obligations to God. What he confronts Israel about is sins that rise from their hearts and come out in individual conduct and come out in the way that they structured their society. The laws that God gave them about their conduct and their society rose from the heart of God himself. These laws are not incidental and they don't pass away. In fact, as we turn the pages of our Bible to the New Testament, We find Jesus and the authors of the New Testament speaking about the very same matters. The sins that Amos confronted in his day are still sins in our day. In fact, as we read what Amos wrote, we recognize that it's a strong indictment of Western civilization in general. Because Amos speaks to a group of people who find themselves on the top of everything and and finding themselves to be unique as a result. He speaks to a group of people that because of their uniqueness and of their power, think that they are actually entitled and that nothing will ever change for them. He confronts them about their conspicuous consumption 
And he says, on top of your conspicuous consumption, you're worshiping false gods who are not gods at all. And he says, as you do, you're maintaining a civil religion, expecting that because you go through the words and the motions of faith, the fact that everything is sin around you, God will overlook and bless you anyway. And as we hear what he's really saying, we recognize he's speaking about Western civilization in the 21st century. On top of everything, feeling entitled and inviolable as a result, conspicuously consuming, worshiping false gods and engaging in a form of civil religion, expecting that there will be God's blessing. He's talking about Western society in the 21st century. But when we say Amos is describing Western civilization in the 21st century, we don't then get to say, well, Amos is condemning society and say that's somebody else's sin and I join him. I condemn Western civilization. Because you see, the sins of a society are always built on the conduct of individuals. And so when Amos confronts the sin of a civilization. He's confronting the behavior and the sin of individuals as well. And so Amos the prophet is speaking to us today about our behavior. So what does Amos say today about sin? The first thing he says is that ritual cannot substitute for worship. It is never true that we can come into the presence of God and engage in the act of worship as a ritual to be performed without opening ourselves to God. When we come into God's presence, God expects us to come with our whole selves and our whole heart to him. Just showing up before him is not what God wants from us. Ritual cannot substitute for worship. Secondly, riches cannot be our highest goal. Now, the sin of the people of Israel was not simply that they were wealthy. It is not a sin to be wealthy. What Amos confronted them about is the fact that their wealth was had by the persecution of others and that their wealth became their highest goal in life. Riches do not reward us. And when we treat them as our highest goal, we find that there is never enough. Riches do not fulfill us, and the more we seek them, the more we find ourselves coming up short. Which leads us to a bottom line behind all of this, and the bottom line is that happiness cannot be humanity's ultimate pursuit. Now, Amos doesn't speak about happiness being one's ultimate pursuit. He speaks to a nation that is engaging in ritual to get the favor of divinity. He speaks to a nation that is pursuing riches as its highest goal and taking the place of God. But behind that, what he's painting for us is a picture of a society that viewed their own happiness as their highest goal, their highest pursuit, their ultimate pursuit in life. He says happiness is not meant to be our ultimate pursuit in life. We were created, we live for something more than happiness. There is nothing in the world wrong 
with being happy. Happiness is not a bad thing, but happiness is not our ultimate pursuit in life. When we live a life well-lived, happiness is an outcome. But happiness cannot be humanity's ultimate pursuit. Instead, Jesus confronts us with an agenda for life that comes from the gospel. And the gospel agenda looks very different than a pursuit of happiness as our ultimate goal. Jesus confronts us with this gospel agenda from the very beginning of his ministry where he announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And look at this. The kingdom of God is at hand. In him, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus announces good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has come near in him. But look at what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come near in me. Let's party. That's not what he says. The kingdom of God is at hand does not become an announcement that happiness has arrived and your ultimate pursuit, the pursuit of happiness, is here. Instead, he announces, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived. And then he confronts us with the implications of that fact. He says, the kingdom of God has arrived. It is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the good news, in the gospel. He says, repent, which means that we walk away from the old lives that we have been living, the old pursuits of riches and ritual and happiness, because those old lives are not working for us. He says, repent, and he invites us to leave behind the rags of our old lives for the true riches of the kingdom of God. Repent, walk away from that old life and be forgiven for it. But then he confronts us with the second half of this, this demand, which is believe in the gospel, believe in the good news. And when he says believe, what he's telling us, that is that New Testament word that, that means give cognitive assent Think that the gospel is true. Know that the gospel is true and trust in this gospel and allow this gospel to change your lives and actions. And so after we repent, our lives are changed. Our priorities are changed. That which we want in life is now different and comes from the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. So how does this come out? Well, the first way that it comes out is that we end empty rituals and worship God in spirit and truth. The prophet Amos confronts us with the fact that empty ritual is not what God is looking for from us. God is looking for something different, for something more. And actually, Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 4 what this looks like. In speaking with the woman at the well, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So that means that God is looking for truth to be critical to our worship. Truth means that we tell the truth about who God is. We know the truth about God and are confronted by the truth about God. And truth means that that we tell the truth about ourselves and we confront that truth. We worship in truth. But Jesus says we worship not only in truth, but we worship in spirit, meaning that God the Holy Spirit is present in worship and meaning that God's Holy Spirit touches our spirits. And so we come into worship with our whole selves, honestly and openly before God. We end empty ritual and we worship in spirit and truth. Doing so completely reorients our lives. And it leads to a second thing that we do, which is we stop stockpiling riches and seek God's kingdom Now, the prophet Amos has told us that our pursuit of riches is never going to get us where we want and what we want. Jesus tells us how to free ourselves from this dilemma. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus is telling us in this context how we can get rid of the anxiety and worry that we naturally have in life when we're pursuing riches as our highest goal. He says, if you want to get rid of all that worry and anxiety, instead, seek first the kingdom of God. It'll reorient your priorities completely. But not only that, Jesus says, when you seek first the kingdom of God, ironically, you're going to get everything you need and most of what you want. But seek first the kingdom of God. Wake up every day longing for God's purposes to be done in the world and in our lives, looking to build God's kingdom instead of worrying about how we will build our kingdoms and how we will stock our kingdoms with things that tarnish, rust, rot, and fade. Jesus says, stop stockpiling riches and seek God's kingdom. Which leads us to understand where human flourishing really comes from, and that is let's make God's presence and plan our ultimate pursuit. The irony about making happiness our ultimate pursuit and the ultimate measure of human flourishing is that the more we chase happiness, the more it will slip away from us and we'll never see it. But Jesus says, seek God's presence. Make your highest end in life to know God, to enjoy him here and now and forever. And along with knowing God's presence, Jesus says we are to seek God's plan in our lives. Meaning that what we are looking for is what God can do 
in us and through us and in the world around us. When we make God's presence and plan our ultimate goals in life, it may cost us everything. Doing so led Jesus to the cross. But making God's presence and plan our ultimate pursuit gains us everything now and forever. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.